Well-calibrated confidence is confidence justified by reality. Mm. I'm fascinated by the study of overconfidence. And overconfidence is more confidence than reality can justify. If I am six feet tall, then I am well-calibrated in my confidence when I believe that I am six feet tall. There are dangers, pathologies, risks, and perversions that necessarily come with any miscalibrated confidence belief, believing that I'm taller or shorter or richer or poorer or smarter or dumber than I actually am. Now, when the future involves uncertainty, then the picture gets more complicated. And I hope we'll talk about probabilistic thinking and good calibration about uncertain futures. Yes, we will get to that. Hi, Michelle Florendo here, and welcome to Ask a Decision Engineer. Listen in and find out how to untangle big decisions with less stress and more clarity. Confidence is a critical part of decision-making and being an effective leader. Not enough confidence, and you won't move a decision to the action phase or be able to cultivate the support needed to move it forward. Too much confidence, and you could make decisions that unnecessarily put you and others at risk. So how do you walk the line of having just the right amount of confidence? Today, I speak with Don Moore, confidence expert, UC Berkeley Haas School of Business professor, and author of the book, Perfectly Confident. We discuss the different types of overconfidence we should be aware of, as well as ways that decision makers can better calibrate their confidence. He'll also share insights from his latest book, Decision Leadership, which helps leaders think about how to empower people within their organizations to make better choices. By the way, please forgive the construction noise in the background. There's some major renovation work going on at my neighbor's house. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to the show, Don. I'm so glad to have you here. Thanks, Michelle. Great to be with you. I'm super excited, especially because you are a professor at my alma mater at Berkeley Haas. And I had attended Haas in the year that they introduced the defining principles. And one of which is confidence without attitude. So how perfect (laughs) that they have (laughs) a confidence expert on staff. (laughs) So one of the things that I'm really hoping you can do a deep dive on, and I know you also have another book on decision leadership, but I always get questions about decision-making and confidence. And I think a really great place to start is what is at stake when we aren't calibrating confidence in the right way? Oh man, a profound question with with lots of potential angles. First of all, let me just say again, how delighted I am to be with you and tip my hat in appreciation to you for laying the groundwork for the defining principles, especially confidence without attitude. Confidence is inherent to so many important decisions in part because every decision depends on a forecast of the future and a forecast of the future necessarily implies some amount of confidence or optimism in that future, raising the question of what it means to be well-calibrated, exactly as you posed, central to every decision. 
Well-calibrated confidence is confidence justified by reality. Mm. I'm fascinated by the study of overconfidence. And overconfidence is more confidence than reality can justify. If I am six feet tall, then I am well-calibrated in my confidence when I believe that I am six feet tall. There are dangers, pathologies, risks, and perversions that necessarily come with any miscalibrated confidence belief, believing that I'm taller or shorter or richer or poorer or smarter or dumber than I actually am. Now, when the future involves uncertainty, then the picture gets more complicated. And I hope we'll talk about probabilistic thinking and good calibration about uncertain oh, futures. Yes, we will get to that. But I, I wanted you to actually go back and repeat what you said, because I think the definition of confidence that you present is so important about and confidence. how it ties to reality. Yeah. And so again, for the audience, because sometimes people think about confidence as a feeling, but for the purpose of this discussion, how should they be thinking about confidence and the definition of that? As a scholar of confidence, I am always interested in measuring it relative to the truth, because what mm. I want to study is overconfidence and underconfidence. So that means assessing confidence on some dimension where I can compare that belief to some reality. Mm-hmm. And that necessarily involves an assessment relative to the truth. Now, that can be an uncertain or probabilistic truth whose reality we might only be able to assess after the fact. And that raises interesting and profound issues. There will be feelings associated with those confidence beliefs. But as a scholar, I can't assess the accuracy of those feelings. So you can feel proud of yourself or you can feel happy and that's great. Or you can feel dejected or you can feel despondent and that doesn't feel so good, but we can't say whether those beliefs are accurate, well calibrated or misguided. Only when we're assessing beliefs about some fact that has an underlying reality, can we say anything about overconfidence or underconfidence? Okay. So this is important takeaway here, even just in the beginning of this conversation, that in order to really think about confidence and calibration, we should be thinking about how it ties to truth and reality. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And sometimes there will be people, would-be leaders, for instance, who make claims about things whose reality is hard to assess. Hmm. And I think as voters, as customers, as potential supporters of a cause, we should be careful about would-be leaders or salespeople who make claims that can't be assessed. We should be a little bit skeptical of those and ask them, demand from them, Mm -hmm. claims that are testable and verifiable. Mm. Yeah, such a good good statement to make. Given, given things that are happening. And so, well, <laughs> let's, let's take this a little further because again, I went to Haas and one of the defining principles is confidence without attitude. And so it's acknowledging that confidence is useful and even critical in leadership, but there also seems to be a, a, an edge to it that may not be so great. So tell me more about, okay, when people err in overconfidence, what is the, what is the downside of that? Well, people who engage in risky activities 
uh, bungee jumpers, skydivers, big wave surfers, coal miners. These are people who know that their safety and their lives depend on well-calibrated assessment of the risks that they face. The most confident among them, if those are the overconfident ones, are not those with the longest life expectancies. Just so in all sorts of business decisions, believing that you can produce more product faster and at higher quality than you actually can will put you at risk of disappointing your customers and everyone who's depending on you in the supply chain, believing that you can make more money faster than you actually can will lead to disappointed investors. There's all sorts of risks that come from business people who are reckless in their confidence and who think that they're better than they actually are. Hmm. And so, well, another follow-up question I actually have, especially because we sit in the middle of the tech sector in Silicon Valley. And I think sometimes in startup culture, there is a lot of confidence. And mm -hmm. so how is it that people should think about calibrating it? How do they think about what is enough versus when they've gone too far? Yeah. So it is clearly the case that founders and entrepreneurs who have a great deal of confidence in their new idea, in their venture, they're more likely to gain backing. They're more likely to woo customers and to attract employees. Those customers, those backers, those employees are looking for founders that actually have what it takes, whose companies will take off and whose products will be successful. And as long as there's a positive correlation between the founder's confidence and their subsequent success, then the beliefs of or the actions of the investors and customers and employees, those will be well justified. The danger comes when that confident display is more show than it is substance. And everyone along the way, every would-be employee, every customer, every investor ought to be on the lookout for posers who are more style than substance and who talk a big game, but who can't actually deliver. So tell me more about what are the ways in which we can think about confidence and more appropriately calibrating it? Because I know in, well, you have a copy of your book behind you. I also have a copy of your book <laughs> right here. You break it down into, there's also different types of confidence that we yeah. can look at. And so tell me more about that. And how do we begin to assess what is enough yeah. or when we need to pull back? Okay. So there's overestimation, overplacement and over precision, over precision. Okay. So as, as we're thinking about these three different types of confidence where we need to be calibrating, what can people do to, to better assess both kind of like where they are on the scale and how to course correct and calibrate? Great question. So uh, I'll answer in a couple of ways. One mm -hmm. is by seeking corrective information. Courageous leaders will surround themselves with colleagues who are talented and courageous and will invite feedback about their own performance that will allow them to correct. You wanna have deputies in your organization 
who are comfortable enough with you and confident enough in themselves to be able to tell you when you're making a mistake such that you can course correct and avoid getting yourself into more trouble. The other way in which you can better calibrate your own confidence judgments is by keeping track and keeping score. Mm -hmm. Given the central role of forecasts and predictions in the expressions of confidence and in decision-making, you really want to get better at making forecasts, well-calibrated probabilistic judgments that will enhance your ability to make expected value calculations and to choose between uncertain courses of action. So you can just do this for yourself. When you're making a decision that depends on some forecast of the future, write down your probabilistic estimate of the key outcomes involved, and then later follow up and check your accuracy. When there's something that you think is going to happen 60% of the time, does it actually happen 60% of the time? And of mm -hmm. course, to get well-calibrated feedback across for probabilistic forecasts, you need a set of, of these items. But there are organizations that attempt to do this. I was part of the Good Judgment Forecasting Project that attempted to do this for the forecasters who are part of the project. Mm -hmm. Some of those lessons have been integrated by businesses and government agencies that want to make better forecasts. And there are organizations like hedge funds that try to help their employees get better at this by tracking their forecasts, their confidence claims, and then following up with them later to tell them how they've done and help them learn the association between their feelings of uncertainty and the actual likelihood of things happening down the road. Okay. And so... Well, just to recap what you said, a couple of things that leaders can do is that they can invite corrective feedback or even just dissenting opinions and also creating an environment where that's people feel safe to do that. Because sometimes exactly. you can say, please give me feedback, correct me if I'm wrong. And people may not speak up, but this piece around tracking and closing that feedback loop, I think is also interesting because you talked about probabilistic thinking which I don't think that many or many people outside of forecasting functions do. And so can you tell me more about how people usually try to predict the future versus how they probably should with probabilistic thinking? Yeah, yeah. Probabilistic thinking is so central to rationality that it's really worth understanding it well. Probabilistic Actually, thinking, backing yeah, go up, ahead. Backing up, because I think you and I both know what probabilistic thinking means. But for our audience, can you go ahead and, and just provide a quick definition? Yeah, it, it just means thinking in probabilities, that admitting the uncertainty in key elements of our decision. I mean, a really simple example is, of course, a coin flip. You don't know how it's going to come out when I flip the coin. It could come up heads or it could come up tails. Right. And thinking probabilistically about that outcome entails admitting the uncertainty. There's a 50% chance of heads and a 50% chance of tails. Mm, it's kind there, of like predicting the weather, like 20% chance of rain versus it's going to rain or it didn't. And then when you close the loop, therefore, if it didn't rain, it's less about, oh, I, I got it wrong. But well, how close was the probabilistic forecast? Exactly. Hmm. And it, thinking through those probabilities is essential to making decisions when the future involves uncertainty. And it almost always does in some form. <laughs> right, yeah. 
Yeah. So the thinking probabilistically not only helps you make more rational decisions now, but helps you think more rationally about decisions that you made in the past. Mm -hmm. So if, if Michelle, for instance, I were to offer you a bet that said, I'm going to flip a coin. And if it comes up heads, I'll pay you $200. If it comes up tails, you pay me $100. How does that sound? You want that bet? Is it a fair coin? Yeah, it's a fair <laughs> coin. Oh, well then, yes, I get $200 it's one way and then I pay you 100. Yes, I will take that bet. Awesome. Okay, so that is a positive expected value bet, which a mm -hmm. rational person should take every time it's offered. Because right. it's 50% chance I get $200, 50% chance I give you $100. Exactly. You do the math, I end up ahead. And if the coin, if you should come, come out unlucky, and the mm -hmm. coin comes up tails and you owe me a hundred bucks, you can feel unfortunate. You can mm -hmm. feel sorry that you had to pay. Yeah. But what you shouldn't ever do is feel stupid for having made a bad decision. You made an excellent decision mm -hmm. and an unforeseeable event left you with the short end of the stick. But if that bet opportunity comes around again tomorrow, you should take it every time. Oh. This is so important because now I'm seeing how probabilistic thinking allows us really to lean into how the quality of our decisions are separate from the quality of the outcome and Amen. gives us that, that space where we can see I made a good decision, but I was just unlucky. Yes, mm. exactly. And companies that do a good job documenting the expected value of decisions at the time that they make them are empowered to be in that position. If, it, if the decision doesn't pan out, they can feel sorry that they got unlucky that the coin came up tails, mm -hmm. but still think there was a smart bet to make at the time that we made it, even though we got unlucky in the outcome. Okay. So a key shift here is that going from feeling bad about, did I get it absolutely right or absolutely wrong? Because in the face of uncertainty, I mean, who's clairvoyant? I don't know anybody who is. <laughs> Move into probabilistic thinking so that we can calculate expected values because that'll help us better calibrate our decision-making. After the fact, there is a psychological risk that you have to be attuned to, and that is the hindsight bias. Hmm. There will be people at your company who say, I knew that was going to happen. How could you have made that dumb bet? But if they didn't bet on that outcome ahead of time, you can't be sure whether they actually knew or whether they just convinced themselves that they knew after they saw the outcome. And, and it's the importance of documenting yourself. the mm -hmm. process. So at the point at which we're making a decision, document what is it that we knew? How are we thinking about our prediction? And then check it. Exactly. Companies like Amazon try to document the inputs into a decision before the decision is made with their famous six page memos, where the executive who's championing some decision has to try to make the case to the other key decision makers involved. Here's why this is worth our time and attention. This is why it's a positive expected value bet that we should want to make, even though we can't be guaranteed of success. Mm. It's funny because the, the call I was just on was actually with a number of people who I coach at Amazon. And they do the other thing that you mentioned too. One of their principles is to engage in that debate, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So we're seeing some of these, these principles that you're talking about at play at a very successful company, or at least a company that has built 
success on some of those practices. And they're not the only ones. Right. Well, so I want to shift gears a little bit. I know we were talking about confidence for a bit. Also wanted to talk about, oh, this is a book that's actually on my shelf. <laughs> hey, this book, good. <laughs> Decision Leadership, and talk more about, okay, how is it that leaders can better cultivate these environments where people can make better decisions? And so first, I wanted to see where you stand on the, the intuition debate, because I think for a long period of time, there is this belief that great leaders had great intuition, and that's what made them really great at decision-making. And so what are your thoughts about intuition and where it should play in the decision-making process? Thanks for that invitation. Max Bazerman and I, Max, is, is, who's co-authored Decision Leadership with me, see intuition as essential for good decision-making. So the brain's intuitive processes represent a massive parallel processing system that is really useful for doing all sorts of things automatically. Mm -hmm. It is also vulnerable to biases that it is hard for us to root out because we can't audit our intuitions, right? You can reflect on your deliberative conscious processes and ask, oh, did I get the inputs right on that? Did I make the right calculation of the expected value there? But when a decision feels right, you can't audit your intuitive processes and figure out what all the inputs were. Mm. The, are, you, are you dubious of a business opportunity because the person on the other side has earned your distrust and you should be doubtful of the guarantees that they are making? Or is it because they look different from you or they sound different from you? Or maybe your lunch has disagreed with you or maybe you didn't mm -hmm. sleep well the night before. Well, if you're just relying on your intuition and you can't trace the origin of that bad feeling, it makes it dubious as a reliable source of information for a high quality decision. Now, all mm -hmm. of us have to rely on intuition because it is so fast and efficient. But when the stakes are high and you need to make the best decision you can because there are so many other people and systems and investors and organizations depending on you, you owe it to yourself and to them to make the best decision you can rigorously examined and rigorously calculated using the best inputs you have. Mm. And so with these, with these bigger decisions, it's worth it to engage in this more deliberative process. And to what you said, yes, intuition has some benefits and kind of a black box. Reminds me of some of the debates on AI and bias. Too. Mm -hmm. We cannot audit, we cannot calibrate. Yep, and that ought to make us worried about our ability to assess its quality. Mm -hmm. And so- Oh, go ahead. I was just going to add that, that there is a voluminous scholarly literature documenting the imperfections of intuition. There are lots of judgments that feel right because they mm -hmm. appeal to our intuitions, but that are predictably biased, where, for instance, we will overestimate the probability, our intuitions will overestimate, overestimate the probability of recent or memorable events. Right after mm. a terrorist attack, you'll drastically overestimate the risk of terrorist attack. Right after an earthquake or a wildfire or a hurricane, people buy more insurance because their intuitions make these risks feel scarier when their actual probabilities haven't gone up. Mm. And so tell me more about what are some of, before we talk about 
how leaders can influence decisions within their organizations. What are some of the key things that leaders should keep in mind as they are making decisions? Yeah. So, I mean, we've been talking about some of the basic principles already. I'll just return to the, the most central element of wise decision-making, and that is picking the option with the highest expected value. So mm -hmm. good leaders will want the wisest inputs into their decisions. They will want to use the best information that they can and assess it in the most objective way they possibly can. Keeping in mind that leadership is an inherently interpersonal activity and that leaders' decisions affect lots of people beyond themselves and their organizations. <laughs> beyond themselves, another Haas principle, <laughs> just saying. <laughs> exactly, stuck that in there. But effective decision-making for leaders is necessarily ethical insofar as it affects other people, organizations, and stakeholders around them. And so thinking about the ethical implications of their decisions is part and parcel of making effective decisions for leaders. Mm -hmm. And so, like you said, inherently, these decisions are impacting a lot of people and the people impacted or even the earth or other entities being impacted deserve a deliberative process. Yeah. Yeah. And they, yeah. those may be non-human entities though. That might, might be the environment, the natural environment, for instance. Resources. Yeah. Mm. And so one of the other things that I've heard you talk about is this concept of leader as decision architect. And so actually for the audience, go ahead and define what does it mean to be a decision architect? And then go ahead and tell me more about what that looks like. Yeah, decision architecture is a concept that owes itself to the important book Nudge by Richard Thaler and Cass Sunstein, where they noted the how the circumstances surrounding our decisions can often influence the way that we approach those decisions, where the classic example is a restaurant menu or a cafeteria layout, where there has to be some food that's first on the menu or in the front in a cafeteria. And the cafeteria designer is the decision architect who influences the decision of diners about what option to consider first. Mm -hmm. Now, where things get placed on a menu of alternatives will influence the way that they're considered, those options are considered, sometimes in positive ways, sometimes in negative ways, but there's no neutral decision architecture. There, is, there has to be an architect who makes decisions about how people will encounter the options before them. Mm, okay, and so the decision architect is basically creating that environment within which people are making decisions and by nature of how that environment is designed, it may cause people to, it will, in, it will affect the decision processes as people engage with them. Yep. And so how can leaders positively influence that decision architecture or you know, what are some of the, the key things that you're highlighting in that book that leaders can do? One of the simplest nudges is a default. The outcome that occurs when a decision maker declines to make an active choice. This happens, of course, all the time in life, where, for instance, um, your investments, your retirement investments, there's often like a default investment allocation that your retirement plan will put you in if you don't choose which investment vehicles you want to select. When that default is a money market fund, basically a savings account where your money just sits, oh, that, that's terrible. You're failing to capitalize on the potential benefits of market investment. 
better default allocation is to default the investments into some low-cost index fund whose returns can be expected to be fairly positive over the long term when you're investing for the long term for retirement. So employers have switched to defaults that put employees' investments into low-cost index funds and also default them into savings plans that will provide enough savings for them to be able to retire on. Okay. And so setting up defaults that are beneficial for the people involved is one way that they can affect that decision architecture. What else, what other kinds of considerations should leaders have when they think about positively influencing how decisions are made? within their organizations. Yeah, I mean, that list is long and we consider many of them in the book. A couple others that I'll just mention include prompting people to think about relevant considerations in their decisions like Mm -hmm. other people and stakeholders outside the organization. When it comes to calibrating probabilities and confidence, helping people think through how they might be wrong or what else might be true instead of forecasting a point prediction, think about the range of possibilities. One version of this is like scenario planning, but a simpler version is just, okay, so you think that sales are going to be a hundred units next quarter. Well, how likely is it that they'll be 90 to 110? How likely is it that they'll be 110 to 130? Estimate Mm -hmm. the probabilities of these various outcomes. That's just by way of helping think through the possibilities. And then keep track and keep score, like we said earlier. Help people get better at forecasting their confidence by keeping track of their predictions and then telling them later how accurate they were. Mm. Okay. It's a very concrete takeaways and recommendations that people can walk away with. You know, as we're, um, as we've been moving through this conversation, I think one of the things that I wonder, given you talk about how important it is to track or document and track how people are making decisions for people who may not be in forecast heavy roles, what would be the, the journal questions you would give them to keep track of how they're deciding things? Yeah, well, it's a given that every decision depends on a forecast in some form. Think through the inputs to a decision. Okay, mm-hmm. so why do you favor hiring person A versus person B? What predictions are you willing to commit to regarding performance of the person in the job? Can we establish metrics that allow us to test your accuracy later on? Things like that. Thinking about the, the key predictions inherent in a decision, what would a success successful decision look like, and then seeing if you can track that and check on it later. Hmm. It's interesting. As you are naming some of those things, I was thinking about some of the, the links that we in the decision analysis world think of in decision quality. And so what are our objectives? Like, what is it that we care about? What are the options? Can we go beyond the obvious? And then the information piece about predictions. What predictions are we making How do we think about possibilities? And then the reasoning piece, sound reasoning and identifying, okay, what are, well, you had talked earlier about like, what are some of the biases we might fall victim to? And also how can we invite others into the process? Mm -hmm. It's worth Mm -hmm. admitting that once you accept the probabilistic nature of future uncertainties, like the natural impulse is to try to gather more information to reduce those uncertainties. And that is a laudable impulse. Mm -hmm. We should want to reduce the uncertainties in the future. It would allow us to make better decisions. At the same time, 
We should admit we'll never be able to reduce those uncertainties to zero. Mm -hmm. And um, we should also be aware of the risk of analysis paralysis, that by encouraging people to get more and better information, to be rigorous and quantitative in their approach to decision-making, we run the risk of inviting them to dither endlessly while they gather more information and attempt more elaborate calculations. And there's a real cost to that too. So yeah. often there is a benefit to speedy action and there's just the opportunity cost of the decision maker's time and energy. So choosing when to stop collecting more information and make a decision based on what imperfect information you have, that's perfectly rational too. Mm -hmm. I'm so glad that you said that because again, I think that we live in a world that because we're just surrounded by data and there's actually increasing amounts of data that are available and increasing capacity to analyze that data, we want certainty, but that certainty is doesn't exist, right? And so the best we can do is engage in a deliberative process, maybe move the needle, take some of the recommendations that you gave us to move the needle a little more so that we can at least improve on what we are doing. But at the end of the day, we need to make a decision. We need to commit to action in the face of uncertainty. Yeah. There's another risk that I see in, in my students when I talk to them about rational decision-making, and that is that by encouraging them to think rigorously and quantitatively about their decisions, they too often wind up focusing on those decision outcomes that are easier to quantify, like money. Mm -hmm. And especially being in a business school, it's easy to focus on the financial consequences of decision-making. But any rational decision-maker will admit very quickly that that is a woefully incomplete calculation that we care about so much more than just money. We care about how other people view us. We care about comfort and enjoyment and safety and human rights and respect and lots of things that are hard to quantify. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that they're illegitimate as inputs into a decision process. On the contrary, those important things are very important and figuring out how to quantify them, however imperfectly is necessary for rational decision-making. Yeah. Uh I'm, I'm reminded of a conversation that I had with Ralph Keeney, who has done a lot of work on multi-attribute decision-making. And so yes, to not limiting ourselves to the things that are easily quantitative. Oh. Any last words or any parting words of advice for decision-makers and leaders who are cultivating environments for good decision-making in their organizations? <sighs> yeah, I... I guess I'd say that our cautionary words about the risks of overconfidence really have to be tempered by the reality that underconfidence is a real problem too. Overconfidence will lead decision makers more often to commit errors of commission where they take action, creating a company, introducing a new product, undertaking some risk that will turn out badly. On the other hand, underconfidence leads to errors of omission where you hold back, you decide against, you don't introduce some new product, you don't pursue an opportunity, you don't approach that attractive stranger. And those are errors too, even if they're less obvious because they produce less embarrassing pratfalls. So the well-calibrated decision maker will wind up taking considered risks in the interest of avoiding underconfidence. Every parent has seen their kid make underconfident errors when they're afraid to try some new activity that you as the parent think there's a pretty good chance that they'll like. And what's the risk 
of engaging in some activity that they ultimately don't like, well, that risk is pretty small. On the other hand, the upside of discovering some new passion is huge. And so keeping in mind that that not going out and making a decision also has its risks, even though they may not be as obvious or visible. Yep. That's the yep. ones where we do do something and get it wrong. And the, the imposter syndrome is one obvious manifestation of underconfidence where we worry that we're not good enough when in fact we are. Hmm. I mean, I think that those are good parting words because I think what I'm taking away is that even though you've left us with so many good nuggets on ways in which we can move the needle and improve our decision-making, improve the calibration of our competence. We're never going to get to a place where it's perfect statically, but really the only way to get better is to continue to make decisions over and over again. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much, Don, for spending Thanks, time with me here. I appreciate it. If people want to learn more about your books or about you, where can they find you on the interwebs? So the I, in your show notes, you can include links to, to the websites for my two books. There's uh, lots of information there. If, if they're really uh, nerdy and want to go down into the weeds, my website, learnmore.org, includes information about my scholarly research and links to a lot of my published papers. But my guess is that, that uh, it runs the risk of putting a lot of your, your listeners to sleep. So undertake that at your own risk. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks again. And I'm so glad that you're able to be on the show. Thanks, Michelle. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you heard something today that you found helpful, please share this episode or write a review. Also, if you're interested in more resources on how to make decisions with less stress and more clarity, like my quick start guide for untangling big decisions or the decision-making courses I teach, check out the show notes or go to askadecisionengineer.com to sign up for the mailing list. Be sure to check out the other episodes this season. Next week, I've invited Michelle Walker, author of The Gray Rhino and You Are What You Risk, onto the show. We'll discuss how listeners should think about risk in decision-making and how the concept of one's risk fingerprint can prompt more constructive conversations about risk. Again, this is Michelle Florendo from Ask a Decision Engineer. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you in the next episode.